Hey everyone, welcome back to Pope Francis Generation. Hi Paul and hello Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to join you guys today. Paul, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, introduce Amy, if you will, and the topic of today's conversation. Yeah, Amy is the uh, founder of one of the one of the pro-life organizations that I admire the most. I've been following her for several years. Um, her organization is Rehumanize International, and uh, she has a new book under the same title, Rehumanize. And we're going to be talking with her today about a consistent life ethic, and it's going to be great. Fantastic. Amy, we'll get to all that in just a second. So hello again, and welcome to Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching, who feel they might not belong in the church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and her practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the charisma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. All right, over to you, Paul and Amy, and let's dig in. Yeah, so Amy is the founder of Rehumanize International, a nonpartisan secular organization dedicated to bringing an end to all aggressive violence against human beings through education, discourse, and action. Um, for this world-changing work, Amy Murphy has been featured in news media outlets such as MSNBC, Maria Claire, Cosmopolitan, The New York Times, the Washington Post, Vice News, and many more. She is also the author of Rehumanize, A Vision to Secure Human Rights for All. And she's currently on tour for this book as well. Yeah, it's it's excellent. We're uh, today in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, our event is at 5.30 tonight, but uh, we got into town early so that I could connect and do this with y'all. Thank you. And you're outside of a Panera. I am. <laughs> yeah, future is now. We're just doing a live stream from from a Panera. I, yeah. I mean, I wrote most of the book uh, from Paneras uh, in the Pittsburgh region, so it, you know, it fits. Right on brand. Yeah. <laughs> so this is life. Um, yeah, I'm super excited to be able to speak with you. Um, I've been doing, um, to more or less of a degree, more when I was a student, um, pro life advocacy. Um, my entire adult life. I mean, I remember, I mean, my parents were involved in setting up right to life booths at uh, local fairs, running the right to life float in local parades, um, helping run a local pregnancy center. Like I grew up in that environment and took that with me to college. Um, but especially since 2016, I've become more and more frustrated and disillusioned with kind of the mainstream pro-life movement. Um, but as I said at the beginning, you're one of the few pro-life leaders who, um, who I really respect and have, have followed your work for several years. Um, so yeah, to start the conversation, um, introduce yourself a little bit and uh, what got you into pro-life advocacy work? Yeah, so um, gosh, it was probably about 17 or so years ago. Um, I had been in an on again, off again relationship, um, I mean, with several people, um, I was, you know, like in the process of trying to sort out my sexual orientation and I ended up in one relationship in particular that was super toxic. Um, and looking back on it now, I can see how abusive this guy was. 
Um, Because I grew up in California where it was just like a given that like if you cared about human rights, you were going to be a feminist. And if you were a feminist, you were going to be pro-choice. And so I was this adorable little, I mean, little, I I was still five, nine and a half. Like I was super tall, but, um, you know, this, this little like queer, liberal, feminist, atheist, trying to figure out what I believed in and trying to figure out my life. And honestly, like looking for, you know, this affirmation, this love, this community. Um, And I ended up really being taken advantage of by a guy who's um, a year older than me. So after I told him that I didn't want to sleep with him anymore, he broke up with me. Uh, So we know what he was after, right? And about a month later, he called me on Valentine's Day and he was like, I'm so lonely. I'm delivering flowers for a flower shop and I'm so lonely. Woe is me, you know, the whole bit. And being the generous and kind person that I was, and I hope I still am, um, I told him, hey, you know, I don't want you to be sad and lonely, like on Valentine's Day. If you want to come over and talk, we can sit on the front porch and talk. But my parents aren't home, so, you know, like you aren't allowed in the house because my parents had a very strict, like, no members of the opposite sex in the house rule at the time. Um, when, when they weren't home and he took advantage of that. And when he got to our house, he raped me. Um, so for all intents and purposes, like our relationship was over. Like we stopped talking at that point. A couple months goes by and I haven't had a period. So I'm panicking, like freaking out. I'm of course, like abortion is the only thing that's on my mind. At the time, it was something that I was comfortable with. And um, the only friend who was still talking to me at the time, because I had tried to tell my whole circle of friends, like, hey, this guy isn't safe. He violated me, like he hurt me. And they were like, no, Amy, he wouldn't do that. Like, he's a good guy. You're just a slut. Like, it's, it's you. And so the only friend who was still talking to me at the time was like, Amy, you should just call Planned Parenthood. Like, you know, like you can just make an appointment and get an abortion. And honestly, like I was heavily considering it, but was trying to figure out how I could possibly hide it from my parents. Um, who had raised me in the Catholic faith, but like never talked about sex or pro-life stuff or like anything related to to sex at all. Uh, So it just like wasn't a topic we talked about in the house. And word got through the high school grapevine, the rumor mill as it does that I thought I was pregnant and um, it got back to him. And he came and pulled me out of class one day. Um, And he told me, he's like, Amy, you need to get an abortion. Like, I'll drive you and I'll pay for it, but you need to get it taken care of. 
And I asked him why it mattered to him because like we weren't in contact anymore. And he was like, well, I just don't want my mom to find out about what happened. And then he said to me, Amy, I'm thinking that if you don't get an abortion, I might kill you. And literally like in that moment, something clicked, like a switch just went off in my mind where I realized that what he was telling me was you're an inconvenience to me and you're an inconvenience to my future. Therefore, I'm going to kill you. And I just realized that I didn't want to be like him, that he had used this, you know, like this cycle of violence, this oppression against me as a vulnerable young woman. And that I couldn't use violence, that I couldn't pass on trauma to someone else who was vulnerable. And like, even though I had taken ninth grade biology, like he was actually in my, my bio class. Like, even though I had taken that class and like, I could tell you like, when sperm and egg of the same mammalian species fuse at the moment of fertilization, they create a new living and distinct member of that species. Like I, I could have told you that, I could have rattled it off. I honestly just don't think that I cared until my own life was threatened. And so in that moment, I just felt this radical solidarity with preborn children and with all victims of violence. And I just knew that violence couldn't be the answer to crisis that I had to embrace this philosophy of nonviolence. And granted, like I didn't have like these big fancy words for it. I was 16 years old and my brain was just like killing humans bad. Like harming humans intentionally is wrong. That was <laughs> more or less like what I could have told you. I also probably could have told you that I very begrudgingly would then have called myself pro-life um, because I knew that it would demolish my social standing like even more than everything that had already happened. Um, but I just became so unsettled by this whole experience that honest to goodness, like I made it my goal to go unsettle the rest of the world because to be comfortable in a culture that has violence so deeply embedded within it, you know, at all levels of society, whether interpersonal or like government down, like to be comfortable in a culture that is so steeped in violence is to be complicit, is, um, you know, just, just, just to be complacent in, in the face of these violations of human dignity. Um, so, you know, as I grew and, and got older, I learned about the consistent life ethic and learned like that was the philosophy that, you know, I, I was embracing at 16 years old, but didn't have words for. Um, 
And I got involved with a consistent life ethic club at my university, um, which was very diverse and just a really excellent, I think, introduction for me to pro-life activism as a whole. Um, and then when I graduated college, I was like, I can't be done doing this work. It's it's so important to me. And, you know, I was working the front office of an urgent care clinic. And I was like, OK, this is nice that I get to, like, serve people in my community in this way. But, like, this is not what I'm passionate about. So I was in a, a Facebook group for, like, LGBT pro-lifers. And I remember, like, typing in, like, I'm interested in starting a consistent life ethic thing. I don't know if it'll be a magazine or a conference. Is anyone else interested? And one person responded, uh, Nick Neal, the other co-founder of um, what was at the time Life Matters Journal. And um, we started working on the first issue of the magazine that very day. Um, so honestly, like it was just this snowball effect where I think my gut was correct that there was an unmet need in the pro-life movement and unmet need in this larger like human rights um group of movements for a a really like active and um like good educational and discourse oriented outreach organization for the consistent life ethic and all the issues that fall under that umbrella um so yeah, it's been an excellent journey. Um, writing the book was really like one of my like 10 year goals for the organization and it got done. So that's, um, you know, something that I'm profoundly, profoundly grateful for. Amy, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, you used a couple of different words that uh, I don't often hear in, um, the vocabulary um, of the pro-life movement. You used, you emphasized violence, and then at one point you used the word uh, solidarity. And, um, uh, you know, like uh, in Catholic social teaching, there's this idea of structures of sin. That like sin isn't just an isolated thing, it like begets more and more sin, like, like violence. Like violence begets more violence and begets more violence. And the antidote to that, the church says, is is solidarity, um, where instead of structures of violence, you create structures of justice. And something that's really difficult about um, uh, pro-life advocacy, anti-abortion advocacy is, at least for me, it's, it's difficult to have or to feel solidarity with um, unborn children. Like it, it's easier to feel solidarity with uh, the homeless person on the street that you can sit next to and have and uh, you know have a sandwich with. It's easier to feel solidarity with. Uh, I mean, for me, I think of like um, six, seven years ago when the Syrian refugee crisis was going on, and there's the picture of the young boy uh, in the red shirt lying on the beach, and he was the same age as my own son, and like I felt solidarity. I was like, this is someone's child, right? It seems to me that that's harder to do um, when it's advocacy and work for uh, the unborn, um, which makes this 
this issue, I think, more difficult? Um, is that something you can speak into? Yeah, it's. I think this is the like the the issue with creating solidarity or empathy in general is um, how well can we know the life of this individual? Um, how similar are they to us at this point? Um, and the thing is, like people who don't have toddlers, right? They might not have experienced the same solidarity that you felt. Paul, about that image of the Syrian child. Um, you know, people who don't have elderly or disabled family members aren't necessarily going to have solidarity with people who are experiencing disability. Um, one thing that I try to recall to everyone um, when I'm doing talks specifically like on pro-life issues is that every single one of us, like every single person that you know or will ever know was at one point an embryo, was at one point a fetus. Um, and that's that's like almost wild <laughs> to think about that like, oh, like at one point I was no bigger than the period at the end of a 12 point font sentence. Um, that's like absurd in a, in a way, when you look at like how, how large I am now, like I am now a much larger clump of cells than I was at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, one of the biggest promoters of this feeling of solidarity or empathy with preborn children has of course come through ultrasound technology, which was so new you know, even when I was an infant in the womb, um, you know, the doctors are like, oh, this fetus is a boy. And I came out and my parents were like, no, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> so and like now these days, you're like this like 4D ultrasounds where, you know, like it's so clear and you can like so easily see uh like the, the resemblances usually to, to their parents, which is so neat. And like, you know, so many people these days have seen ultrasound images of their siblings or their cousins or nieces and nephews or children that I hope that like through that experience that people will understand like, you know, this child has been themselves from the very beginning. Um, you know, there's no point at which they became themselves other than the moment of conception, right? Um, and an interesting facet of this for me has been learning about the study of epigenetics and like how um, like cycles of trauma mm -hmm. uh, generations prior can cause like genetic um, ripple effects, I guess. Um, and like just understanding that like prenatal development, uh, can be so impacted by these things. Um, you know, like there are so many different <sighs> facets of my life, right. That were almost like determined 
um, you know, at, at fertilization or during prenatal development. And so like learning all these facts about prenatal development has been just like certainly very rehumanizing um, for me. There was actually like a, a National Geographic sponsored like documentary thing about like the the journey of life in the womb. Yeah, with uh, with uh, photography. Yes, and and like videography, and it's yeah. so cool. Um, I mean, like j just the technology that has come to exist in recent history is so wild to me. And this is something that I think I, you know, like when it comes to the death penalty, um, and we've always been able to see like the you know even people who have committed murder and these grotesque crimes, like they're obviously still human beings. Um, but we didn't know about the just straight biology, like the biological fact that the human ovum existed until the 1800s. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's so recent in human history that we even know all these facts. So like, I try to definitely like have more grace about it and explain like, hey, you know, I understand why historically different religious beliefs have held different um, ideas about when human life begins, because we didn't know, you know, like we didn't have the scientific equipment to understand these facts. It is only more recent that we understand that a human ovum exists, that like how fertilization works, how prenatal development functions, um, you know, like when certain body parts begin to um, form and like that sort of thing. Like this is all so new to us. And so. Yeah, we don't have a culture built up that right. these are part of the foundation stones of how to think about these things. Yeah. We're trying to, we're sort of retrofitting them, retconning them into, um, into things. Exactly. I think that's something that's, at least for me, um, something challenging about the consistent life ethic. So, uh, so like Pope Francis teaches in a fratelli tutti that every single human person has infinite value and like full stop, let's stand there a minute and realize the implications of that. And the implications of that for me are there are some groups of people I feel emotional solidarity with instinctively, like we've talked about. And there's some that I don't maybe because of it's um, lack of contact with them or like with the pre-born lack of understanding or scientific knowledge, or maybe it's even ingrained like prejudice that I have that I may not even be aware of. There's some groups of human beings I feel solidarity with and some that I don't. So this belief that every single human being has infinite value challenges me to say, even if I don't feel solidarity, I have to have solidarity, even if it's like, not selfishly, but the sense of like, if I believe that me and my own have value, then I have to believe everybody has value. Because if everyone doesn't have value, then nobody does. Um, which is something that Pope Francis got at in, in Fratelli Tutti when he talked about capital punishment. He has a line where he says, if something like, if we can respect the dignity of the worst of criminals, we have the capacity to respect the dignity of everybody, which I found really profound because in the pro-life movement, I've heard a lot. Um, if we can't protect the life of the most innocent, 
we can't protect the life of anybody. And the Pope's taking that and he's saying the same thing, but he's saying it in a way where like, no, we need to actually like, who do you, who do you not feel solidarity with? And do your work to recognize their value. Cause if you can do that, you can choose to respect the value um, of everybody. Um, Isn't that a, a, a more practical way? Maybe it's one way into it, but just a practical articulation of loving your enemies. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially for people who might not even think like, oh, I have an enemy, right? It, like, and it might not be like a malicious thing, right? It might just be a, a prejudice thing um, where you're overlooking certain groups and just not considering them. Um, which isn't, you know, like I said, it's not necessarily hateful or, um, you know, malicious. It, it can be just, um, I don't know if I would say an ignorance, but it might be ignorance. No. Um, you know, it's just a, an exclusion. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask cause Rehumanize is a secular organization, nonpartisan. Um, I believe the the current head of the organization um, is an atheist, correct? Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and you're Catholic, mm -hmm. um, so I'm interested how um, how the Catholic tradition has influenced um, the way that you understand and and teach a consistent life ethic. Great question. Um, so when I started Rehumanize International, I I wanted to make sure that it would be a, just a radically inclusive organization, not only in terms of whose rights we were fighting for, but also who we're working with to achieve those goals. Um, because I wanted to make sure that it would be a place where I would have felt welcome as 16-year-old little, like, queer, liberal, feminist, atheist, me. Um, because really, like, if we want to end all forms of violence, we need everyone to believe that each and every human being has inherent dignity. We need everyone to believe that violence is contrary to that dignity. And so, so it can't just be, you know, like a, an organization just for Catholics or a movement just for conservatives or whatever. Um, it really needs to be like a broad-based, inclusive movement that can teach this philosophy to people um, from any background. Um, so like we definitely like come into the organization with that as a uh, part, you know, a central part of our mission. That being said, because the consistent life ethic, like that name, this movement, um, was so popularized by Cardinal Bernardine and um, you know people like Catholic activist Eileen Egan, um, who was a you know pacifist and founder of Pax Christi. Um, there's so much openness to the consistent life ethic in Catholic circles that um, I think it was almost necessarily going to happen that we were going to have Catholics who are involved and who are who would be able to speak to 
um, you know, not only the Catholic roots of the movement, but also um, how that translates, like how this, you know, these general secular principles translate into, um, you know, a, a Catholic moral philosophy. Yeah. Um, so I know one of the things I consistently come back to um, is just the idea of the Imago Dei, right? The idea that each and every human being is made in the image of God. Um, and, you know, there are arguments about what that means. Um, I'd say, you know, from a secular philosophical standpoint, a lot of people say, oh, well, that's, you know, being a, a creature of a species of a rational nature. That's what it means, you know, to participate in the image of God. Um, if you want to be Thomistic about it. Well, and like that sort of thing, right? So, um, I don't know. I, you know, there are arguments you made that it's it's just about the idea of having inherent dignity. Um, either way, I think this this idea of the Imago Dei is something that has been easily translatable um, from this perspective into into both realms. Um, you know, making it secular, but also like just bringing the the beauty of it um, into Catholic circles and clarifying that one of the reasons that the consistent life ethic is so vital is because there's nothing that we can do as human beings to change our nature as made in the image of God. Yeah. That this is something that we carry with us regardless of how old we are or how innocent or guilty we are or how you know non-disabled or disabled we are or useful or useless or whatever, like that this is a central part of our essence. It's not a consequence of circumstance. Um, and, you know, so it, it's interesting because uh, at some parishes, I've done speaking events where like the head of the social justice ministry and the head of the pro-life ministry will finally come to the same event <laughs> together. Um, when I'm speaking and they're like, oh, we've never met before. And I'm like, how have you never met? The, to me, they're one and the same. You know, that, that um, respecting life in all stages and all circumstances is a consequence or part and parcel of social justice. Um, and that respecting life in the womb also necessitates caring about their parents and their families and them beyond birth. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting to me, certainly, <laughs> uh, that unfortunately, like in, um, at least in American parishes, I guess, that it's really seen as like two distinct movements that like don't intersect or don't interact um, so I'm hoping, you know, like that through our consistent life ethic witness uh, that we can bring together these seemingly disparate sides that don't need to be disparate at all. And in fact, I think should be working together. Yeah, I think it's um, your experience lines up with my own a lot in, uh, you know, Catholic spheres in the United States. And I would say from my perspective, it goes even further than, you know, 
the left social justice group and the right pro-life group not connecting, but actually like there's active animosity and not even animo even beyond animosity, active um, uh, dehumanization of each other, which is something that uh, like in, in Catholic teaching, it's been emphasized since Vatican II and that Pope Francis really captures on when he talks about capital punishment. He's like, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing that can be done to me that reduces my value. Um, that can't happen. But yet in our rhetoric, like within the church on these issues, I see, you know, all sides, right? De dehumanizing the other. Where like, um, yeah, um, where you just see rhetoric that says, if you vote this way, or if you believe this policy, or if you support this thing, um, like that that's, that's, that that's demonic or that, um, I mean, one example that comes to mind is, uh, um, uh, I, I follow some of Father James Martin's work and the pastoral work he does um, uh, with LGBTQ um, communities. And in, in some more traditional or more conservative circles in the church, you bring his name up and it's like pure venom where like, he's like Satan incarnate. And I'm like, these are people who would call themselves pro-life. How can we use this rhetoric? Um, which brings me to, <laughs> I think me working out some of my own, uh, some of my own personal things. So I have felt more and more alienated from, uh, the mainstream pro-life movement since, especially since the 2016 election. And just the way that so I saw so many pro-lifers with platforms, not just like hold their nose and vote for, but like publicly defend and like cheer for someone who used some of the most dehumanizing rhetoric I've ever heard. Right. And then, you know, in 2020, this pandemic happens and I, and I see pro-lifers, I see Catholics, I see people who like, again, pro-life leaders, but also people who like volunteer at the crisis pregnancy center every month. Use slogans like my body, my choice in order to, um, you know, try and get out of using vaccines, um, taking vaccines or using masks. And it makes me not want to be a part of that group, to be entirely honest. It makes me want to disassociate myself with that group as much as possible. But at the same time, I also believe that unborn human beings have infinite value. Uh, so help me navigate this tension. How do you navigate that tension? I know I'm not the only person in this place. How do we, how do we do that? Have, give me all the answers. Yeah, no, I mean, it is truly a challenge, uh, I think in our very politically polarized day and age to be ethically consistent about human life about human rights. Um, and this is something that I wrestle with a lot. Um, but I, you know, I see it on both left and right. You know, I definitely have seen it in my family members on both sides of the political spectrum, where uh, the rhetoric is so I'm gonna say deadly. I don't necessarily mean that it's like actually like 
taking lives or killing people, but like it is so harmful to our own spirits if we use it. It's harmful to community and relationship. It's harmful to our politics. It's harmful to like the culture that we live in. And sometimes I, you know, I like, I'm just going to say it. Like sometimes that rhetoric precipitates harm. Um, you know, if that's dehumanization of people of color or, um, you know, children in the womb or disabled people or whatever, like there's, I think there is such an attachment to political ideology that a lot of people prioritize whatever their political leaders might say over what their scripture says or over what they have ethically um, you know abided by historically um and i don't know if it should be as alarming to me as it is but i find it pretty alarming um i also am unsurprised at this point you know like i think in in 2015 and 2016, I was so alarmed and um, so tense, um, like internally about the rise of Donald Trump. And, you know, I did everything that I could in my small power to try to speak out against it. Um, you know, I signed on to a letter that Susan B. Anthony List um, started that was, you know, from a bunch of women leaders, you know, women pro-life leaders who were saying, like, we will not vote for Donald Trump. We will not support him, um, you know, for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I was like, yes, I need to sign on to this. Like, the fact that a sexual predator is running for uh, president of the United States is not acceptable. Um, like, there are a lot of Republicans with whom I disagree on a lot of policy things. Um, but like the level of dehumanization that Donald Trump was just consistently like coming back to and his rhetoric was so, I mean, it's so toxic that it's, you know, it's, it's pervaded and it's seeped in now six years later. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are worried that it's something that's not going to go away. That, um, that sort of like you know, potentially like neo-fascism is, is here and we're going to have to fight it, literally. I, I struggle a lot about whether or how um, to stay involved with like the mainstream pro-life movement. I think a lot of our presence in the pro-life movement has been um, calling in in a way that it is, you know, like we we're present in other social justice movements as well, where, you know, we're saying like, yes, we're here to stand with you and fight for the rights of this group of humans. Um, but like, I also challenge this group to be more consistent in their support of, for example, the right to life. Um, So, you know, I've always kind of found our presence like at the March for Life as one that it is intention. 
Um, I, um, I remember saying years ago to my spiritual director that I was having a lot of angst about being like in both pro-life and feminist spheres and feeling uncomfortable in both. Um, and he was like, well, that's, that's the nature of being a bridge, isn't it? Like to be intention. And I got so angry because like, it was so accurate. But it also sucks. <laughs> right. Uh, like I was like, oh yeah, I did take statics in college. Yeah. Like the whole reason that a bridge functions is through like literal tension. I'm mad that you know that. <laughs> like I'm mad that you're using that against me. Uh, but like, it was so true. And he was like, you know, and one other thing about being a bridge is that a lot of people are going to walk all over you and not think a thing about it. Um, so it, you know, I, I appreciated that challenge from him. Um, because it kind of reminded me that like, my goal here is not to be comfortable. And in fact, if I want to make effective change, I will almost necessarily be uncomfortable because I'll be calling people in on both sides and, you know, asking them to be better versions of themselves, asking them to be more consistent, to be um, more compassionate or, you know, like more committed to social justice, et cetera. Um, and so that's going to be a necessary place of uncomfortability. But it's something that, like, I think our modern culture doesn't know how to be uncomfortable very well. So I don't know. I, I guess my only real answer to this question is, like, learn how to be uncomfortable because it's going to continue to be hard to be committed to our ethics in a world that is unfortunately, um, you know, so steeped in this dehumanizing rhetoric. Um, so we have to learn the art of being uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that resonates with my own experience a lot, where for years as an adult, I felt very at home in uh, the pro-life movement, uh, in the conservative world, uh, in the conservative Catholic world. And now I have felt homeless for years. And at first I was like, this homelessness sucks. Um, and just like wanting to find a little place uh, where I felt at home. And then more recently, coming coming to terms, I think, uh, as you described, like being a bridge means not being on either side either, right? Like not uh, not not really having a home. This reminds me that, like, in I'll say the last couple of years, um, I was doing uh, Advent readings. And of course, the one that really just like punched me in the gut was, you know, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, and what that spoke to me of was that to, to truly uh, embrace this seamless garment of life, of human dignity, if you will, um, it, to, to be that ethically consistent, to be that challenging and uncomfortable for people who are more tied to their 
ideology um, is almost necessarily to be homeless because people don't like being uncomfortable. Um, you know, they don't like being told that, um, you know, something that they're embracing or stumping for is um, morally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, um, so, I, you know, I part of me is like, well, maybe I, I need to feel uncomfortable and I need to feel like I don't have a political home because if I do, is that a sign that I'm compromising or is it a sign that I am neglecting something? I don't know if that's like necessarily accurate. Um, but I think in this day and age and in this context, it is. Yeah, I think um, uh, something else I see um, in my small circles of people who feel homeless and uncomfortable, there's also the, t the temptation to like to grow better and to define yourself as the one who's in opposition um, and to lose the grasp of like, what am I fighting for or what am I for? And then kind of resorting, falling back on this, like, I'm just, I'm just like mad at everybody else and I'm not them. Um, uh, do you experience that temptation and how do you like, how do you move past that or through that? Um, I definitely, um, and this is like, you know, a consequence of my own historical mental health struggles, I think. Um, I find a temptation to despair a lot more than to uh, be like angry or bitter. Um, though I, I do feel, uh, you know, a temptation to that from time to time. Um, but m much more often, um, I definitely feel a temptation to throw my hands up and be like, well, nothing that I'm doing is making a difference anyway. I don't know why I'm exhausting myself to do this. Um, you know, it's, it's all going to hell. Why, why am I, why am I even trying? Um, and I'm honestly so thankful. Um, I don't know if you guys got to attend the, my online book launch. Um, but Martin Sheen participated and like we had, we just had a conversation with him and my friend Savannah. Wait, like, like, like president Bartlett, Martin. Yeah. Sheen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, like the idea was like having like a mentor generation activist and like a new generation activist and like talking about like their experiences doing activism for consistent life ethic causes. Um, and he was such a gem and i'm so grateful that he was able to have this conversation um and one of the things that he ended up saying that like really hit me and like my husband kyle will say it to me he said it to me several times on the tour when i'm like so exhausted from getting like not enough sleep and you know being on the road constantly um and he, 
Martin said, you know, like, even if only one person shows up, that's okay. Because you're showing up and just by showing up, you're making a difference. And you might not notice that difference and it might be a small thing and it might be internal, but just by you showing up like that is doing something. So like continue to show up, even if only one person shows up. Um, and, you know, like he said it more eloquently than that. And, you know, like he illustrated it with an example and everything. So, you know, go, go check out the, the video recording of it. It's on the Rehumanize International um, YouTube channel. But, um, you know, just, just this idea that like, even one person showing up is making a difference. Um, that was just, just a huge and necessary reminder for me when I am tempted to despair. Um, and like, sure, I, you know, I can from time to time struggle with bitterness or anger at the way things are. Um, But I think one of the reasons why I don't like existing in that space is because um, it can tempt me to dehumanize, like to view other people as enemies. Um, if I view, you know, the situation with bitterness because of things that people are doing. Um, and like, yeah, you know, the violence continues and is perpetuated by the things that people are doing. I'm like, I'm not gonna lie and say that's not the case. Um, but I think it's more productive and more rehumanizing to view others as like potential allies, as future friends that I haven't made yet, as, um, you know, people who can and you know hopefully would with ample time education and opportunity um you know become the people that i march alongside in these efforts um so i don't know i i try to remember that and then like you know rest and get back to work i think it's really important to surround ourselves um as much as possible with people who um, agree and those who disagree to, to have conversations about these topics in a way where, you know, with people who agree with us, we might be able to be like, I can't believe this is still a thing. Like where we can be able to bitch and moan and be upset that it's still a thing and create, you know, talk about creative solutions and, you know, creative nonviolence that we can try to implement in our communities with those people and then with the people who disagree, you know, like have productive conversations where we are challenged, but also where we challenge others, um, you know, where, where we listen, like actually listen and hear what people have to say and like what their concerns are. And, um, you know, take that into consideration when we go back to our circle of people who agree with us and we're like hey you know like this is something that people are saying and i think it's something that we need to take seriously um in our work like it's important to continue having these conversations 
even if they're uncomfortable, <laughs> because ultimately, uh, I think that's, you know, like, even if we find it discouraging some days, um, I think more often than not, if you go into it with the perspective that the people that you're talking to are coming at it from the best of intentions, from good hearts that are trying to do the best with the information and the resources that they have, um, that you can find common ground and you can build relationships and also challenge people in a way that is like gentle and humble, but still like principled, you know? Yeah, I think that's the profound effectiveness of the phrase you used was creative nonviolence, which is, you know, so when I hear that, you know, I think of like, like Martin Luther King and like nonviolent protests. But there's something about that, I believe that's deeper, almost like an internal virtue of like refusing that. And the word you used was like to dehumanize other people, even internally, like even in our thoughts, refusing to like, use to, to use dehumanizing rhetoric towards people who sure as hell feel like our enemies, right? Um, and that, but having that disposition, having that virtue, um, I've found at least, I go into a situation with people who I think are my enemies and I'm able to come in with a vulnerability and I'm able to come in and share my story. And that's all I have to do. And that in itself can burden their conscience, right? Because it's not a threat. I'm just coming with myself and with reality, um, with a disposition um, of nonviolence. Yeah. Um, this conversation has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Um, to wrap up, tell us about like, uh, where can we find your book? How can we support your work? What's going on with you? Yeah, so um, I currently am on the second big loop of my book tour. Um, it's been all over the country, all out west so far. Um, this trip we're taking, we're going down south next. Um, so you can find out more about the book tour and upcoming stops at uh, rehumanizeintl.org slash book dash tour dash 2022. Um, there's a link to buy the book there on the, that page um, for only $22. It's normally $24.95 MSRP. So we're selling it at a discount on the Rehumanize website. But all the proceeds go back to our work and um, you know, it's a higher royalty than we would get from like Amazon or whatever. So if you can buy it from us, they come signed and everything. So um, yeah, you can learn more about me, um, my speaking engagements and um, you know, some of the other creative endeavors that I am getting up to at consistentlyamy.com and that's amy spelled a-i-m-e-e -E. yeah fantastic we will we will link to the rehumanized website for people uh to buy your book awesome and include that in the show notes yeah
Amy, thank you for coming on. Really, it was a personal pleasure for me to just sit and listen and learn. And uh, again, like Paul thanked you earlier, and I want to thank you too for sharing your story. It's obviously, uh, I mean, you've, you've shared it, I'm sure, a bunch because it's such an important part of you, but the pain is still very raw and real. And, and I think we can see that. So thank you for uh, being willing to keep revisiting that. It cannot be an easy thing. So thank you for coming on again today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for for listening and holding my story with respect and gentleness. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we will. Uh, uh, we do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, uh, Paul. Before we do that, is there anything else we want to end with? Otherwise, I will be thanking them too. No, go for it, Dominic. Alrighty. So, Select to Give sponsored a full year of Pope Francis Generation. So, please do check them out at selectinternationaltours.com. Here's what they have to say: More, uh, more Catholic leaders choose Select International Tours than any other pilgrimage company with 35 years of award-winning travel planning. They have a track record of excellence and faithfulness, and they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, helping Christian families to thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or if you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage journey and visit selectinternationaltours.com. Uh, we also do want to thank Smart Catholics, which is the um, uh, the show or the, the community that's bringing to you uh, this, this series. Uh, if you're liking this video, please do hit the like button. It helps more people to hear Amy's message. Um, Smart Catholics is the online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations that are unafraid of doubts and questions. If that sounds like you, come and check us out on smartcatholics.com. And we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. Uh, Paul, if our friends have a question or some feedback about this show, where can they go? Yeah, you can go to PopeFrancisGeneration.com. Um, that's my own project, um, the host for this podcast, as well as uh, um, my writings and uh, other projects there. So you can contact me through there. Um, you can also support me there. Um, uh, uh, your support is how I do um, all of all of the projects that I work on. So it's much appreciated. Um, that's PopeFrancisGeneration.com. That's right. And paid subscribers to Pope Francis Generation get to watch each episode before everybody else. And there's also the option for private Q&As, and you can even pitch ideas for shows later on in this season. Thanks again, Amy. Thanks again, Paul and friends. Until next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you. <laughs>